0: hello and welcome to the compassionate leadership interview i'm chris Whitehead, and our guest today is nancy klein founder and president of time to think author of time to think more time to think and the promise that changes everything I won't interrupt you. Coach, author and speaker, visiting lecturer at Henley Business School. Nancy, welcome. Thank you. Nancy, first things first, Michael West and Aurel Majumda, who have appeared on previous episodes of this show, send you a hug and bear love. Thank you. My back to them, please. It feels an understatement to introduce you as a coach, author, and speaker. You are a leader in the theory and practice of coaching, and I would say the coach's coach. Most practitioners will have one or two other coaches, Simon Weston, Manfred Ketz de Vries, Peter Blucker perhaps, who've inspired them, but have yet to meet a coach who hasn't been influenced by your work. Did you imagine at the start of your career that you would achieve that impact? Goodness, Chris, that's an
1: exquisite thing to say. And if I could imagine that it could be even 10% accurate, it would be um, very moving and is. The answer is, assuming you're even 10% right, the answer is no. And I think the, for me, interesting part of that is that there was no such thing as coaching. When I first began to get serious about the question How do we help people to think for themselves? And I also was interested from the beginning in finding some, even if tentative and always emergent answers to that question. I wanted very much for those answers to be something that ultimately could become a way of being with each other. That is to say, I was always operating in the context of listening to people professionally and helping them to listen to each other, even not professionally, um, but just as a part of their lives. I was always interested in that, but I never had, and I still don't have much invested in largeness, in the size of anything, the size of A group the size of a readership or the size of an impact. I'm more interested in what's working well and I'm interested in what might be wrong or not so good in what we're doing. I can come back to that later so that we can get closer and closer to having long-term applicable knowledge about the human mind at work when it's under the right conditions for independent thinking.
0: You've always been a writer. I believe you've written 11 books in all, but Time to Think was your breakthrough bestseller. Do you think of yourself as a writer that runs a leadership development and coaching company or as a coach that writes or neither of those?
1: (laughs) That is the most bullseye question for my life right now, actually. And it has been the at least swirling around me question for always. Uh, I appreciate very much how perceptive you are in seeing that that's a tug of war for me. And um, maybe it's a tug of peace, I don't know. But the, I think I would say that they're inextricable from each other. I think that the formality of the company, time to think, and of the job that is mine to nurture its faculty and to be a kind of final word about what seems to work best in all of our um, experiential research going on all the time, That, that dimension of the practical nature of what I write about, I don't think is set in stone and it is always morphing. Right now, the reason the question you ask is so relevant is that I want to spend the next 10 years as leisurely as I can be in trying to get everything written that I can before I die. Now, I've always sort of felt that way because you can always die. But I think that the writer in me is a has kind of her hands on her hips stomping a little around the room saying, isn't it time for me to be the one that gets most of your attention? And I think I am restructuring things so that can happen more. And yet to write in a vacuum, however long I've lived, which provides a context for my writing and it does for my website as well. But if I weren't fully engaged in the thinking environment work, my writing would be less sharp edged and I think they serve each other beautifully, Chris. That's what I really think is they serve each other and they serve me beautifully.
0: If there's one Nancy Klein quote that everyone remembers, it's the quality of a person's attention determines the quality of other people's thinking. A quote that you actually attribute to one of your clients. Where did you first encounter the power of listening with fascination?
1: Well, I think to your question, and then if there's time, I'll come back to the origin of that quote. Where did I first encounter it? I think when I was born, I experienced my mother as what I would now call uh, an embodied thinking environment. Uh, My father, too. And nobody was calling it that. And there was no systematic or theoretically kind of underpinned thing people were doing. But... I knew that when I needed to talk to or wanted to talk to my mother, that she would listen to me. And I realize now that she hardly ever interrupted me, that she seemed interested all of the time. Sometimes she was alarmed by what I was saying. and would, I think she wished I would change topics sometimes, especially when I was a teenager. But she became sort of imprinted, I think, the way her way of being became imprinted uh, on my sense of what listening is and that it was with fascination. And my father was the same, different in his different ways. My father was able at one point in my life to contribute to the fact that I didn't die because he listened with fascination and listened to my silence with fascination. I I won't tell that story today because it is on a Lloyd Wigglesworth Vimeo, which anyone can access. But I think that I first was introduced to listening with fascination from the minute I was born and and raised with it, and then experienced it from them until they died. But if I could just go back to your point about this uh, quote, the way I, I think it's done most fully is that the quality of everything we do depends on the quality of the thinking we do first. And then the quality of our thinking depends on the way people are treating us while we are thinking. And that translates to be that the quality of our attention determines the quality of other people's thinking. So that all is a kind of theoretical base that's observably true, as far as we know at the moment. And it was a pleasure in my very early days of working for corporate leadership development when one of my clients said, actually, what I think we're experiencing here, Nancy, is that our attention is in fact generating the thinking of the other person. And I I think because that was a science-based corporation, I was very excited to see that that much discernment uh, seemed to be evident to him and corroborated what I was thinking but hadn't quite been bold enough to say.
0: There's only one Nancy Klein, but through your company time to think, you're extending the reach of the thinking environment model. How would you describe the mission of the organization? I can tell you
1: what the vision I hold is, and I can tell you what the strategy is I don't think of the company as having a mission because the company is incidental. In my view, it is, it's incidental to the discovery of more and more of the thinking environment, what it is, because we're not creating the thinking environment. We are discovering in my view is we're discovering by coming as close to it as we can. We're discovering more about what it is that it's, part of what human beings expect to have when they arrive. They have all the equipment when they arrive on the planet. And the fact is that we just de-educate that or, and, and we, we fail to live up expectations in my view, but time to think the organization is not really an organization. It's a loose network of qualified professionals. And the time to think company is just me and Stephanie. And there are three of those companies, but they're still teeny weeny and on purpose. I would like to say though that my vision, and I don't know if it's everybody's vision, but my vision is that one day every human being will live in a thinking environment from birth to death. And our company's strategy is to discover, teach and qualify people and to work therefore with the qualified people and others to learn more, to discover more, therefore to be able to teach more, to practice more and so on. And I would say that right this minute, because this is my current passion, part of the strategy is to help people reclaim what I think is a natural love of discovery and to help our professionals to love discovery marginally more than they love the discoveries which will prevent the dogmatization of any discovery.
0: Can I ask what is your own leadership philosophy? It sounds though it's got a lot to do with devolving power and empowering people, am I right?
1: When I first started thinking about your question, uh, my leadership philosophy, I would say this, which I will in a second, whether it has to do with devolving power, very interesting, not sure. But anyway, I, I would go way back. I would fan way back when it comes to a leadership philosophy and say that I think the core job of a leader is to generate the finest thinking from everybody whom they influence. And that that job entails their understanding how to create the conditions wherever they are for the generating of independent, good independent thinking. And I guess that you could say therefore that if independent thinking is seen by the leader to be their primary obligation to produce, that they are devolving power by definition. If power can be said to be impact rather than control, And so I would guess that there there are lots of ways to devolve power. They don't all lead to independent thinking. But I would guess that you couldn't get to independent thinking without devolving power.
0: You are author of Women and Power, How Far Can We Go? And an advocate for women in positions of leadership. Do you believe that there are differences between the way in which men and women lead?
1: I think that there are differences in what the male and female, roughly speaking, cultures allow by way of instruction in how to lead or permission for ways to lead. I don't see any evidence yet that inherently women lead differently than men. You can't kind of get the cultural conditioning out of people sufficiently to be sure what they would be doing if everything they're doing were not influenced by the culture. And so what I think works better is the question, what in say women's culture allows women to create thinking environments more readily, more comfortably, and more often than men's culture does? And equally important, what is it in men's culture that allows men to assume they will be thinking, to assume they will be making the decisions, to be able to lead from, generally speaking, a greater expectation of influence and leadership in that way. And what I find exciting and have now for all the years since that wonderful engagement you mentioned earlier, so so nearly 30 years, is because it's a cultural learning it can be unlearned you can't undo the fact that you learned it but you can start to at least superimpose on it the other genders cultural permission to create thinking environments and so on their own if you just left to themselves women would typically listen longer they would typically be more consultative and men would typically interrupt more and they would typically dominate and not so be so interested in everybody's thinking you know that's probably true you could probably figure the numbers would come would would support that but i think what's thrilling is to see that both genders and i know that gender now we should be talking about multiple genders but i'm just going to get stay simple for the moment that the culture of both genders allows for a version or a set of facets of the thinking And women typically can then be comfortable giving attention, creating equality, generally creating more ease, though not always, but that their culture wouldn't be telling them to be tense all the time. And they can typically be more comfortable with the thinking environment component, which is feelings because they've been allowed to cry and not be thought of as not a real woman. Whereas men, if they cry are thought of as not a real man. And conversely, men can be very comfortable Knowing that they have the right to think for themselves. So if you put both cultures together and blend them, which is what happens when men and women get together and become a thinking environment, they have to adopt each other's cultural permission for a thinking environment. And that fills out the gap in their own. That's how I would see it.
0: Would you say that in some respects, women are better equipped to lead in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous post-industrial world in which we now find ourselves?
1: No, I don't think inherently we are. Again, I think I would just reference what I said before, that I think that people who are the most resilient in that kind of setting are the people that know how to create thinking environments. It's the thinking environment that is the resilience source. That's where resilience lies,
0: I think. So building on what you said actually before about filling in the gaps for one another, do you think maybe that the best thinking environment in the post-industrial world is actually created when you have a mixture of men and women on the same team? Yes, I
1: think generally that is correct. May I just add, though, that you can get the same effect, if it's, if it's an all-male team, let's say, there will be a, a big deficit of experience and life experience that isn't the same for women and men. So that, that will be a big deficit. But I would say the thinking environment will allow those men to be able to deal with this post-industrial world with the kind of resilience we want. And if it's all women, the thinking environment, because it expects the finest possible incisive thinking from women and confidence in their own um, ability to do that will also have a good effect. But I I do think generally we need a
0: balance, a mix. Yeah. In our email exchange before this interview, you said you were deeply committed to the NHS. Can you tell us why that is? I can. I came to Britain to...
1: um, Live When I married Christopher, I moved here for love, um, but I would say for the NHS, and it's because I see the NHS as one expression of the finest in civilization. I think it's because I think that human beings are born with a right to health care and a right to education. And most, so much of the world and certainly the United States uh, generally as a body would argue that we're born with the right to education but not a right to healthcare. And so I would say that if you had to choose one over the other, which would be a a completely um, useless point idea, but if you did you'd have to start with healthcare as the right because you can't get to education without a healthy body. So I just do think that the NHS is an expression of that principle of human right. And I think it also is a civilizing thing. And for me to come here, Chris, um, it took me two years before my automatic response to medical emergency was not, oh, dear, they, we, whatever, will not be able to afford even to go to hospital. That was my, my knee-jerk reaction every time I heard about something that was going to involve a lot of medical care was they'll never be able to afford that unless they had extraordinary insurance or something. There's something about going to bed at night and knowing that everybody's going to get the care they need, whether or not they can afford it. There's something dignifying of, my, of me in knowing that they're being dignified when they enter a hospital, when they enter a surgery. We're all better people because that is going on. And I think the other thing is that this NHS, in my experience, and I do appreciate, and of course we hear about the enormous, enormous challenges, and we do get, you know, people will complain if they just have two inches of airspace. But my experience of the NHS has been, only of extraordinary care and expertise and knowledge and uh, commitment to and connection with patients. So I just think the whole thing is entirely what humanity is about. It's, It's an expression of the best of us.
0: Thank you. Your latest book, The Promise That Changes Everything is the third in the Time to Think trilogy. What's new for us in this book, Nancy?
1: I will say what I said to you earlier, which is that um, I think it's actually a quartet we're talking about here now. Because the Women in Power, How Far Can We Go? showed where my particular focus was at that time. But it is actually the beginning of the thinking environment. And each of those books is uh, the first Was six, the time to think came six years later. That was six years more knowledge uh, and experience practice and so on that we had had. And then 10 years on and then 10 years on. So I could say in a nutshell that the promise that changes everything is 10 more years worth of discovery and of application and of pulling back to see what didn't work and moving forward with what's better. The thing I would like to say about it, though, that is different is that for various reasons I had to come up with or drill down to the one thing that seemed to me to be the distinguishing characteristic of a thinking environment, one thing. And I could see finally, but it took three months of grappling with that question. To see this, which sounds nutty because actually I've been teaching this for so many years, but really what works to help people think for themselves as far as they can go in the time we've agreed is that they know they will not be interrupted. Now that translates to a promise. I will not interrupt you. That's my basic promise when we get together or when our meeting starts. And you know that you won't be, and because you know it, as opposed to just getting lucky, your mind does something like relax, venture out, open its arms, race to the edge of the cliff. It does this most amazing thing that it cannot do when it's taking in your attempts to interrupt. And of course, if you actually succeed in interrupting, it takes that in and collapses, basically. So... This is not to say there's not value in exchange. There's huge value in exchange, and we can do that still with the promise of no interruption. And I think the other thing to say is that over the period of of getting the book ready, I realized that there are four systems of interruption and that we live in the systems and that they're different in their impact from the potential of a person interrupting with words, another person or interrupting with a frown or something. But we live in systems of interruption and those four systems are also delineated in the book. I don't have to go into those now, but just to say that I think that has enriched our understanding of why this is such a challenging offering in life to create a thinking environment
0: for people. Do you think that you've said all that can be said about the thinking environment now?
1: There are probably people who wish I did think so. Um, But the nature of a thinking environment so far is that it is ever emergent. And therefore we're, we are noticing new things all the time and understanding them better and better refining that. So I would say probably not. And it's also true, the example I just gave about understanding that it's this promise of no interruption, that a lot of what I've said seems coherent enough, all right, and it works well enough, but I am not even really understanding all of it. You know, the, the, we all have this experience. I think I understand something. I talk about it. And then one day I think, oh, that's what that means. So then it becomes another thing to talk about. My father said I was born talking and hadn't stopped since. I do at least stop when I'm listening.
0: So now we have a series of questions I ask all my guests. What's your proudest achievement in your career to date?
1: I think that it is that I stayed true to the recognition that the conditions for independent thinking are there to be seen, recognized, discovered, and therefore this was not going to become a methodology or a codification of thought. It was going always to be a fluid thing. And that profoundly influenced what I did with it. The other thing that vies with that, that, you know, sort of, I think is equally, I feel equally pleased about, is that from the beginning, I wanted there to be less company and more practitioners a network, not a company, as I said earlier. And that the business model, so to speak, is of many, 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 many little companies that I attempt to serve with my support and enthusiasm and ongoing professional development. But these companies stay lean and again, resilient. The 2008 crash, for example, hardly touched any of our client base or a a potential for work. I didn't do it for that reason, but I am glad that small is beautiful remained my kind of guiding light, I
0: think. And would you be prepared to disclose your biggest mistake and what you learned from it?
1: Actually, you, you probably can tell by now that mistakes to me are divine moments there are moments I want as many of as possible, not the making of mistakes so much as the recognizing of mistakes, but actually the making of mistakes means, in the context of my work means that there's been boldness there. There's been venturing out and then there's been some confidence in gathering up and making presentable and therefore teachable and therefore able to be put into practice ideas and suggestions for what can work in in this kind of context, we're talking about, we make mistakes because we have the courage to go out there and try and do. Now, I don't think that in itself is enough uh, to make it divine. But what I I do think is, is when we get excited to see that we, it was a mistake rather than defensive or frightened or embarrassed but rather to say, this is a thrilling moment because I thought X was true and now it turns out it's not quite so true. And so therefore, what is true has a better chance of emerging. And I think if the the willingness to make mistakes, the excitement about the possibility, the, Mm -hmm. the thrill when it happens, and then the immediate search for what is more true than, the thing we've just found was a mistake is. Uh, I think all of that adds up to the growing field of knowledge and wisdom.
0: And is there a person or experience that has inspired you on your journey?
1: Yes. In addition to my parents and some important teachers, and Christopher, my husband, who is one of the greatest inspirations in my life, and whose own leadership in the world of organizations, as chief executive over his period of work uh, and especially as the founder of the London lighthouse, the HIV and AIDS center in West London in the mid eighties and nineties all of that was then and continues to be hugely inspiring to me. And he also would say, and I think this, this was important for me to learn from him. And he inspired me this way too, that, that the authority to lead derives from, the appointment as leader, of course, but the ability to lead relies on the consent of those who are led. And he used to create thinking environments for all of his staff in his organization and taught me so much about going from one-to-one thinking environments to organizational ones. So I would say he is a very great inspiration. And I would also add Peter Klein um, because he was my first boss and he was the one who first of all said, our first job here as teachers is to create whatever it will take for these young people to think for themselves, not to just think like us. Actually, he treated me to a thinking environment on the issue of the Vietnam War that allowed me to rethink my stand on that. And in 1968, quite an extraordinary experience for me. And when I look back on that, I know that as it would be later with my father in that hospital situation, I had been allowed to come to a completely new part of, of life because of the way he treated me.
0: Is there a book besides your own podcast or video that you recommend to aspiring leaders?
1: Yes, not one. And so you, you you have editorial rights here, so you can just edit this out. But I do want to tell you because I love that question. Frankly, I think any book by Margaret Heffernan is an, is an essential book, and she's written many uh, for leaders. So I would say any book by Margaret Heffernan. And then I also, though, want to mention that I am currently having a sort of love affair with two books, particularly because of my current passion for trying to develop a love of discovery in people. And one of them, it, this is by a fine, fine scientist, He's a evolutionary biologist, but anyway, he, his name is Stuart Firestein, and he wrote a little book called Ignorance and that one, most of all, I think of the more of the, of the two is the, is the one I would choose if I had to, but since you're not stopping me, I will say that I also love his one called Failure. And uh, his point is that science relies on both ignorance and failure. And I would say, basically, he's saying we need to get rid of hubris in our thinking. And then finally, I think the Tao of Leadership, which goes back many years now, probably 20, 25 years, um, by John Hyder, I think, H-E-I-D-E-R, I I, I think says very much the same things that Christopher Spence was saying about how you get your authority for leadership. Basically, the idea is that what matters most is the heart and soul of the human beings that you're leading. That's where you start, and that's where you stop.
0: What does your self-care regime look like?
1: I love that you are asking about that because of how important that is for leadership as well as just generally, isn't it? Well, I'm proud to say that I'm now, because you're interviewing me now, rather than, say, four or five years ago, I have a much more satisfactory answer. And that is that I start my day most days with time just to be, I sit, Uh, it's not a formal meditation, but it's a time of attempting to notice what, that I am, that I exist. Um, Sometimes I also light a New Mexico, which where I'm from, pinyon incense, just to evoke that beautiful part of the world for me. The other thing I think that matters very much, and I have been doing for many years actually, is to start my decision making about what I do for my work and how I execute that with the question what will give me energy and meaning? And it's been my attempt all the way through my working life to do that which will always give me energy. It's not to say there aren't some things about it that can become a drag, but that that is, I think when we ha- are working, living primarily in ways that give us energy, we are healthier. And so we can, in the end, live longer and do more. And giving us meaning, I think matters hugely. We don't all of us have choice like that, but I've been able to have choice. And so that's been important. And I also do... I think I eat pretty well, and I follow the Times 11 guide for how much to weigh and how to get there. And I, I sleep now without an alarm, having read the sleep book. And also, I have a thinking session every Sunday. That's really important for self-care.
0: You have a thinking session. Is that is that with Christopher?
1: Well, he and I have, a. a it's not a formal thinking session, but the culture of our relationship has always been that we listen without interruption to each other. And uh, we take approximately equal turns. So at the end of the day, now it's so nice because we're home, but it's always been true. You know, how are you? How was your day? Becomes a time of listening without interruption and asking some questions to pull things out. And then the other thing is that on Sundays I have a, an hour and a half thinking session with uh, one of my colleagues, one of my faculty members and that is a time for me to think deeply and feel deeply and understand more and heal and all kinds of things. It's pretty magical.
0: Finally, then what advice would you give your 20 year old self?
1: Well, I'm going to say to start with just because this is an important thing for me about advice. I don't believe in advice. I do think this is an interesting question. and I will answer it. But, uh, but it's an opportunity to say that, I think we can give experience to people. We can give um, our thoughts to people. We can give information to people. And we can certainly appreciate people. But to tell them what we think they should do in any guise, I think, is to demean them, to ask them to be us. So our language, the language of advice, I think, is hardly ever right. All right. So I love that I had a chance to say that because I think our world is run by advice givers in ways that are not useful. Independent thinking and getting advice are often at odds. Um, Having said all of that, I would say that if I were to go back to my 20-year-old person myself, and I would say, please know, Nancy, that all things are going to turn out better than you can possibly imagine. Well.
0: Well, I've greatly enjoyed our interview today, possibly the pinnacle of my podcasting career, as you are one of my all-time heroes. There's no doubt listening is one of the most transformative things we can do for ourselves, our family and colleagues and for wider society. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book, on Amazon. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at Patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, Chris at Consulting.com. This episode was recorded by Zoom. The music was brought to you by Ninety Six Pack on CPU Records.